this is this actually seems like probably it was a different person, but it's it's actually me. I got up an hour early before school several days a week and walked to the school and the janitor would recognize me and let me into the school before the door was unlocked. And I would go up there and I would, because I didn't have enough time during the school day, you know, my free, to actually work through these. So I actually worked through all those books of Teach Yourself Applesoft Basic there and made made some games. With me on the show today is somebody who I've had the pleasure of knowing for quite a while, Matthew Miller. Matthew is the Fedora project lead. Um, Matthew, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm excited. I'm excited about this, and I'm excited about your program concept as you're explaining it to me. It seems like it's going to be really cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was thinking the other day about, you know, when was the first time that I actually talked with you? And if my memory serves me correctly, the first person uh, that suggested that I reach out to you was Adam Williamson. Uh, I think it was out at Linux Fest Northwest. And I think that was right around the time that you had become the project lead. We talked for a few times, and then when Fedora 21 came out with all the changes, uh, I was the producer of the Linux Action Show at the time, so we had you and a couple of the developers come on to talk about, you know, the big changes that were happening in Fedora. And recently, we've been talking a lot more in the Fedora social hours that happen weekly. And by the way, shameless plug for anyone that is in the Fedora community or the general Linux community, uh, you really ought to take part in those. The time alternates between when it is every other week, so it gives everyone a chance to join depending on what time zone they're in, and I'll throw a link for that in the show notes as well. But to get back on point, when I was thinking of who to have on for the first episode of this of this new show, a couple people's names came to mind, but my focus for this show is on people instead of technology. And there's a bit from the Fedora mission statement that just, it seemed like a perfect fit. I'm actually going to read it now. It's, the Fedora community is made up of people from all walks of life, working together to advance free software. There's a place in Fedora for everyone who wants to help, regardless of technical skill level, as long as they believe in the core value. Like any friends, we occasionally disagree on details, but believe in finding acceptable consensus to serve the interest of advancing free software. People that work in technology were such a wide, varied bunch with ranging of interests, and we always get treated as a giant monolithic block, but we're all very unique and very different. And that's one of the things that I, I would love to focus on is the individual people. In the shows I've done previously, it's always been about the technology. Now, obviously, we all love that. That's good. We're happy about that. But there's a whole personal side to all of us. And thinking back to when you and I have talked in the past, it's pretty much always focused on the technology. And I don't think I've ever heard you talk about how you ended up like where you are today, what what the journey was. So let's let's start with that. When you were younger, what kind of drew you towards technology in the first place? I've always been interested in, you know, geeky kind of tech things. Um, computers always seemed fascinating to me, computers. And, you know, I read Isaac Asimov as a very young child. Probably a lot of it went over my head, but, you know, uh, I, I enjoyed it. And so this had an appeal to me. You know, I watched Star Wars and all that that stuff, right? That's the Obviously. For, formative <laughs> years of a, a American kid in the 80s. Um, and my, my family did not have a lot of money. Um, we couldn't afford, you know, even like a Commodore 64. But my school, every classroom had two Apple II computers outside of the classroom in the hallway. And next to those was a stack of Teach Yourself Basic books. And one of the great things about these computers is 
they were not super powerful, which meant that the games that you could play on this device, and you know, the learning and educational stuff, blah, 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 Oregon Trail, right, did not seem like they were beyond a level of competence of something you could make if you got to the end of those books. Now, that's not quite true in reality, but it felt attainable. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I like the idea of you could you know, dig in and get to this, you know, these books and it would unreal, unveil the secrets of how to make this machine do what you wanted it to do and you know, make, make your own games. I wanted to make my own games. That was my first, first passion in it. This, is, this actually seems like probably it was a different person, but it's, it's actually me. I got up an hour early before school several days a week and walked to the school and the janitor would recognize me and let me into the school <laughs> before the door was unlocked. And I would go up there and I would, because I didn't have enough time during the school day, you know, my free, to actually right. work through these. So I actually worked through all those books of Teach Yourself Applesoft Basic there and made made some games. I, I would, dur during during class, when I was supposed to be doing other things, I would be writing, I, I still got have some of these pages of handwritten basic code that I was going to then type in later and of course debug because handwritten basic code that does not run right the first time um, are, are really it, uh, it doesn't but, but uh, <laughs> yeah so I just that just really was appealing to me and I kind of just got into it from from just that want, wanting to make games I guess that's really the the initial driver and um mm -hmm. I've still done that. I, I made a I made a game called Icebreaker, which has some penguins bouncing around. around. Oh, nice! Uh, this I actually almost forgotten about this, but uh, somebody on Twitter there was a thing about you know musicians can can make songs for their girlfriends or love interests. What a mm -hmm. what a what a tech people do. And I actually made this game for my wife, so I was like, aha, oh, that's nice. Um, <laughs> And uh, I've, I've been recently trying to learn Rust, and I'm working on making a game in Rust as well. Um, not because it's a good idea, but because it's a fun way to approach learning things. Yeah, it definitely is. I think it's interesting because I remember when I was younger, you know, looking at, at the programs that existed, and they did seem like they were reachable. Whereas now, if you look at, you know, a modern game, for example... They're so massively complex. It's like, I don't even know where to start. Yeah, I was looking at the promo video for the PlayStation 5, and they were like, we went to this cave and mapped it down to the millimeter level, and we're getting A-list actors to do this, and like, let alone the programming of it, it's just, it just seems unattainable to look at those kind of things. So it makes me worry a little bit about the next generation of computer hackers because they're coming into it from a different experience. Yeah, back in the day, you know, it used to be easy to, for instance, like in desktop stuff, you know, I knew next to no C++. Um, I knew next to no Qt. I had dabbled. But I could look in, like, KDE1 source code, and I could look at it, and I could understand, even not having a programming background, kind of what was going on, and then, okay, well, maybe I could stick something in here that would do that. And, of course, I wasn't skilled enough for it to actually work, but I could look at it and understand. Whereas, you know, if I go get the latest KDE source code now and I try to find a, a small feature, there's so many other things that link together with it that, yeah, it's like somebody young who's coming up and they want to just make one small change. Making that small change nowadays is a little bit more challenging. Yeah, and this is actually not, not to go too much on the technology side, but right. it's connected. This is one of the reasons the GNOME developers decided on JavaScript as the language for GNOME 3. Now, that has a lot of other implications, but 
the choice was really this is a very accessible language known to a lot of people who dabble in programming and it will make this environment more accessible to people. Um, so yeah, a lot of people in the open source world kind of think about that accessibility um, from a technology and programming point of view. Mm -hmm. So your your school had you said Apple two E's? Uh, oh no not, no um, I'm a little bit older than that. The first ones were they pluses? The first ones I used didn't have capital letters. If that um, makes okay. you um, it, like that, or I'm sorry, didn't have lowercase letters. Everything was all caps, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. You, did, you had to get an. I think you could get an add-on board for that. So it was before the. I, by the time I got to like the upper elementary school grades, they were two E's, which is a beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful the peak of the Apple two. Um, yeah. Right. Um, but the earlier ones were even more primitive than that. So did your school always stick with Apple as you went from elementary to middle to high? Um, so I went to a different school system for high school. But yeah, up through okay. middle school, it was it was Apple. Okay. What was your first introduction to open source and Linux? People seem to be introduced in different directions. Some people first discover open source and then through that they find out about Linux. Or other people were first introduced to Linux, and then through that they learn about open source. Which of those camps do you fall into? Yeah, so I actually learned about open source fairly early on. I learned about it in high school in early, like 1990 or I don't know, somewhere around there. I need to check the exact year here um, because mm -hmm. I was talking to someone at my parents' church about you know programming as an interest, and he encouraged me to you know learn a real programming language, not just basic, <laughs> um, and. But I saw so I was looking, and you know, at the time, like a C compiler for DOS or whatever was—I th think this would have been early Windows era—but a lot of stuff was still done in DOS. It was ex an expensive proposition, you know, hundreds yeah. of dollars for a knockoff, low-brand kind of thing, and thousands of dollars for a good compiler. Right. But uh, my friend said, "Oh, there's this thing that's actually free, and it's—it's it's not shareware. It's actually a free software thing, and it's actually a DJ GPP, DJ Glory's." Um, port of GCC tools to DOS. Mm -hmm. And so he provided me this on floppy disks. And I was sort of blown away that just by the generosity of the people who had made this compiler and, you know, it's very complicated tools and, and, and kind of wanted to make it about sharing, uh, which, mm -hmm. which was pretty neat. I never, I didn't really learn C from that, but I, I remember that, that made, it made right. an impression on me. It, it took me took me several years later to learn C. So how long would you say after that till you learned about Linux? Yeah, so I, I kind of knew about Linux. And this was, so I uh, went to college during the early years of, you know, the commercialization of the internet. And I okay. uh, was at a small college and was working in the uh, IT department as my student job, as people people do. And th right. there was a Linux system there. I had an account on it. I poked around it a little bit. And I was setting up terminal servers for PPP dial-in. That was my job. It was kind, yeah. of, kind of fun. Yep. Um, basically building an internet provider. And meanwhile then, my friend, uh, who was a couple years older than me, graduated and discovered that in rural Indiana, having graduated from college, he no longer had email because from college was where email came from. And he was like, this won't do. So he convinced his dad that um, starting an ISP would be a great investment opportunity. Uh, his dad had a small accounting firm. So the accounting firm started an ISP on the side and they hired me in to help build that because I had been doing that at college, build, build okay. the ISP. Okay. So we worked on doing that and we originally had a couple Windows NT systems that were our servers 
for that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. one of them just kept crashing every night and it was very frustrating. And so uh, one like 3 a.m. thing, I was like, you know, I have heard that what people use for this is Linux. Let's see if we, and it's free, let's try it out. Um, and so right. there was that CD Magic stack of five distros mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And uh, yep. there was a thread on Reddit about this recently where somebody posted a picture of this exact thing. And uh, in that set, the first one on the stack was Debian, and it was made badly, and it didn't boot. So because of that, okay. I'm not a Debian user, threw that CD away, and the next one was Slackware, and that one booted, so we installed Slackware and set up, and it was so much better for what we were doing um, that I became a very quick convert to Linux mm -hmm. um, and changed my you know, my desktop at work and all the servers became Linux pretty quickly. So yeah, uh, it, it was the right tool for the job, and I... I've got a bunch of the... Uh... Uh, the five pack CDs back in my collection. One of these days, I'll have to dig them out and see if we can actually find the one that you had because they all had different cover art. So if you if you remember the cover yeah. art, then I can I can check. This was the one with like a bad Martian the Marsh. Mar okay, Mar Mar Marvin the Martian kind of. I'm gonna I'm gonna go check real quick. Oh wait, wait. the people who are listening to the episode, they're gonna be like, wait, there's a dead space. Well, this is why. A little intermission. Because... Music will be yeah. Inserted I have here. to I have to go check on this. It's a slightly different one, but it okay. is that InfoMagic. Yes, yeah. that's the right one. Um, okay. So apparently InfoMagic, for everyone who's listening, has two of their five-pack uh, CDs. Actually, this one's a six-pack with little Martians on them. So yeah. if you have if you have a copy of that, you should definitely email into the show. Uh, I would love to see it. And I'm sure Matt would like to have some memories about that as well. Yeah. Um, right. There was a Red Hat one in there as well, but we hadn't gotten to that one. So we became Slackware users for a couple of years until we got frustrated with, you know, that no package management whatsoever. And mm -hmm. so Red Hat's selling feature basically was Red Hat Linux, you can upgrade things. And even in those days, security on the internet was important. Yeah. So upgrading yeah. our software on our servers, you know, mm -hmm. we, got we got broken into a lot back in those days it was I, I learned a whole lot from um aggressive early internet hackers on our systems sometimes i would fire up the talk command and chat with them a very very like because you know it was it was a lot of script kiddies a lot of very smart people yeah just seeing what could be done because everyone yeah, was curious exactly at that time. what are you doing on my system <laughs> so it's interesting that you bring up uh the isp thing because I know people who that is exactly how they got involved in it was running an ISP. It was, I need to do something like this. And so they started the ISP and it was through that that they learned. I think that was pretty much the killer application for Linux at the time. Mm -hmm. It was, the, the timing was right. The internet was right. And um, it was, it was cheap. And your other alternatives for, you know, these small little ISPs that were competing with telcos that didn't know what they were doing, but had a lot more money. You could you could build something that without, you know, without spending millions of dollars on your initial investment. So you started with Slackware. Do you remember what version of Red Hat it was that kind of shifted you over? Um, I remember, yeah, so it would have been Red Hat Linux. I think the first 
disc we had was actually the Halloween disc. Okay. Okay. But and, and that probably wasn't even the most recent one at the time. That's what we had the media for, and then we started from there and went up. I remember it had. I'm getting my Slackwares and my early Red Hats confused. I remember it was a there was a 1.112 kernel. Um, okay. You, could, you know, or a very early like pre Linux two kernel uh, on on these things. So it's pretty old yeah. school. Yeah. Wow. I there's a bunch of just um, brain cells I'm using for some bits of information that are not useful. <laughs> well, they haven't been used in a while because I don't think many of us have thought about you know the one point X kernel line for for yeah. quite a long time. So for you coming up from open source into Linux and then getting involved with the ISP and helping them set it up, would would you say that that was kind of the moment where you know your brain kind of opened up to the possibilities of what you know Linux and open source gave you as far as possibilities, or was that a, no, another I, point? Yeah, in time? I think I think that's it, and I think it was also you know kind of the early optimistic internet online community about how we're building a new society that won't be controlled by giant mega corporations in their walled monolith. <laughs> if we only knew, if we only knew. <laughs> dot, 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 no comment. But it, it kind of fit into that nicely. Um, and mm -hmm. Kind of a collaborative feeling of Usenet, people helping each other out with all sorts of different things. Yeah, that was one thing I do miss about the early days was there was so much more camaraderie because a there was so much knowledge that you knew you needed to learn and you found somebody and you appreciated it and because they had recently been in your shoes of learning it as well like they understood how much you appreciated it so when you would find a, a small community that was helpful you didn't want to leave because it was a great resource and then you wanted to give back because that community had given to you where now i hope we now, still have that to some degree at least I, that's something i certainly would like to foster it is, in it is something that still exists i feel i think though just because of how busy everything is now that kind of a, communities have become more transactional and that somebody jumps in a community because they have a problem that they need to solve and then well then they've got to jump to the next problem um, in, in a way, it's almost that we are victims of our own success because Linux has become so prolific that so many people use it that it now has become a tool more so than this is something I enjoy and I just want to mess around with. Yeah, which, you know, that pays my bills as a Red Hat employee, <laughs> so I am, am grateful for that. But yeah, you're, you're right. There's something about this, the hacker community aspect of it that's appealing. And... Um, at the same time, there's something, you know, that was more insular about that community. And there's we kind of see that the bad side of it as well with the, you know, I went through this pain of booting Linux from, you know, 20 floppy disks. And I have a, you know, I ran VI for the first time and I had to um, reboot the computer to get out of it kind of thing that we actually we actually had this discussion on the Fedora mailing list recently uh, where one of the things in the new release is we're changing the default terminal text editor from VI mm -hmm. to Nano. Now Nano, VI, Vim, is a very powerful text editor that's been part of Unix since the dawn of time. Um, <laughs> possibly predates the dawn of time. Um, it, it's very it's very old um, and very, very powerful and has great capabilities, but it is, it, it is user-friendly for the time when you might be using a teletype mm -hmm. terminal kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so Nano is not very powerful at all, but has a killer feature, which is it tells you how to exit on, right. on the, the screen right away. Right. Um, and you don't 
have to be in a special mode to type in mm -hmm. your text editor. It's actually a thing for writing things. So we're switching to that. And we actually had some people who were like, this is bad because when people get thrown into VI and they can't exit it, that's how they learn and become part of the community. And I, you know, I, I see the appeal of that, but it also like not everybody who wants to use this um, should have to go through that particular hazing ritual to become part of the community. There should be other on-ramps and other ways we can bring people up to expertise. And I do think that everybody who runs a computer should learn to use VI because it's mm -hmm. cool um, and it's everywhere. And, you know, but you shouldn't be forced to as your first steps. Like, that's not a good on-ramp to the community. And so I, I think that early communities had a lot of that problem. And we see that you know, in the diversity of our communities today, where we have gender and racial disparity that is honestly worse than technology as a whole, which is worse than, you know, the uh, universe as a whole by a lot, right? And I, I think some of that gatekeeping energy is is how we got there in the first place. So one of the ways we can infer, increase our diversity overall is by being more inclusive overall and making it easier for people to come in from where they are, whatever pathway they're coming yeah. to. Yeah. 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 I've been, I've been a nano user for a long time. Um, I just like it cause it's just, it's just simpler and I don't, I don't have to think. Um, I was joking with a friend of mine a couple weeks ago when, when we were actually discussing the fedora change and you know, he made a com he made the, you know, the comment about, well, you know, you'll, people will eventually figure it out how to get out. And I was like, you know, Honestly, all the VI should do to like end the discussion is have a macro that's like in, in the first 10 seconds, if someone hits control C or control X, because those are the universal bails, that it then just accepts that as, okay, they want to get out. And then after that 10 second window, then, then, it, then it's all, you know, you're back to the normal, but give people the, yeah. oh, I don't want to be here. I need to get out a, a quick way to bail. But yeah, uh, honestly, exiting is the tip of the iceberg yeah. for the complexity, right? Because you've got an editor where the mode where you change words and you move like you move the cursor around um although vim you know modern vi lets you move the cursor around the the old school vi like if you wanted to move the cursor you exited the mm -hmm. text entry mode and switched to the moving right. the cursor around mode again very powerful once you're used to it not a great yeah. first so were there other things that when you when you were first learning other those minor little roadblocks that you hit that you think are important things that we need to keep in mind for the people that are coming into our community that are newer and don't have the breadth of experience that, that we do? So one thing I see a lot um, with younger people is a, a side effect of open source having one, which is, uh, oh, these licenses aren't so important. I just want it to work. Um, and the fact is it only works like it does because there was such a big push on open source licensing, on free software licensing, the extremely valid fight between those mm -hmm. two points of view, which we try to mm -hmm. bring together in Unity and Fedora. Uh, but just, and you know, copy left, this idea that I will share with you, but you've got to join mm -hmm. the collective here, right? It's like, it's a sharing thing and be part of the sharing uh, rather than, you know, uh, I'm. it's nice that you gave this to me. I'm going to go right. off and make a profit from it. Um, it's fine to make a profit from it, but share back. Come on. Um, and I think that because, you know, with, oh, I see a lot of stuff, you know, up on GitHub with no license whatsoever. 
or mm -hmm. uh, or people make up their own flippant licenses because it seems like a joke. Um, it's really important to have a good license, and it's important to have a open source license, and for a lot of cases, a copyleft license that really helps make the whole. Yeah, finding go. there's been times when I've been looking for something, and I've found you know a, a snippet of code or something on GitHub, and it's like this is perfect. There's there's no license. Okay, now I need to figure out how to track down and message this person so I can just ask them, are you giving this away for free? Are people allowed to use this? Like, what are, you wrote it, you get to decide, right. but just let me know if I can take this awesome thing that you wrote and shared and use it, because it's it's really good. Right. Right. Yeah, I've got a couple tickets on some GitHub projects that are open for years, wait, yeah. waiting on something like that. Right. Shifting gears a little bit, when, when we were younger, you know, and we were getting into open source and getting into Linux. There were there were things that just really inspired us and that really got us excited and then drew us in more and more. Is there anything that you see developing in the Linux and open source communities now that kind of rekindles that excitement for the possibilities of what can be? So I think... Um... Linux on small IoT devices is the closest thing there is to the Apple II experience that we had because with you know Home Assistant with some of these things you can have an open source thing that you can build ideally running Fedora IoT but uh, <laughs> you can you can you can pick pick your distro I don't care uh, that was a lie I do care uh, but you can pick your distro uh, but you can then build something on that that you can actually you know you can control the lights in the house you can have an overview make a dashboard of you know your cameras which are also running Linux and doing all these mm -hmm. things so you can actually build something like me looking at Oregon Trail and saying I could do that I can look at you can look at an IOT project and you can think yeah I could I could you know, spend a couple weekends some time and I could make a thing that actually is useful. Like I'm thinking of doing this for my thermostats because I'm really frustrated with both Nest and Ecobee and the, their stuff. Yeah. And you know, a thermostat, it's a sensor and a 24 volt relay. Like you can, I, I can make this. So that's a project I, yes. I'm, I'm going to do sometime here. Um, and you know, also if it goes wrong, the nice thing about a thermostat, like if it's failing and your house isn't warm, you can just twist those wires together and your furnace will turn on. It's a <laughs> uh, easy, easy, safe project. But I think things like that are, again, accessible to everybody where you can actually have a real impact. You're not trying to make, you know, the next Halo or whatever um, that, mm -hmm. that you're not going to be able to even come close to. <laughs> yeah, one of the people that I met at Red Hat Summit last year um, is an educator from Baltimore, Melanie Shimano. And she's been using the Raspberry Pi in schools to teach kids about plant growth. Um, she started the food computer program. And it was fascinating talking to her and her being able to tell the stories of the students realizing, hey, this is something I can do. I can actually exactly. do this. This is amazing. Put a link to this in, in the links, please. I want to follow it. Yeah, I will, I, will I will definitely put the food computer links down there. Because we live in that age where... You can buy a device like a phone or, or whatever else that's prepackaged. It's all done. It's all there. You've got the little, you know, walled garden of programs that you can run on it. And I fear that the younger generations are growing up and that's the normal for them. Whereas when we grew up, I remember not having a computer in the house and then we got the computer in the house and it was the new thing. And it was, I have to figure this out. 
and it didn't do anything on its own unless I made it do something. Whereas now, people expect that when they get something, it should it should be done, it should be ready, and it's there's that creativity of let me figure out what I can do with it that's lost that I really wish we could kind of re-foster in the community at large. And the maker community has been doing this. I just wish we could do more uh, of it. My, my 13-year-old daughter the other day, we were talking about, you know, Android phones versus, you know, her friends with, with iPhones. And um, she said, you know, in the future, they're going to have brain interfaces for these. And when you have a baby in the hospital, they're going to ask you, do you want an Apple implant or do you want a Google implant? And then from then on, you're going to be an Apple person or a Google person. Uh, and I was just like, wow, kid, that's a dystopian story in yeah. <laughs> what, two sentences? <laughs> yeah, let's let's not oh. go down that road. I mean, the fact that we're already at the spot where teenagers are like, yeah, this is going to happen should be kind of a warning flag for us <laughs> right. to begin with. Like, hmm. Yeah. I hope that we have. Uh, I'm excited for my brain implants, but I would like them to be open standards running open source code. Yeah, that I can shut down at any time and <laughs> another company doesn't yeah, own the rights to no it. There's no DRM module running in there telling, you know, with its own vendor code that no one knows what does. Uh, open source firmware all the way on the brain implants. Yeah. So for for people that are just starting out their careers or they're in high school, they're looking forward to wanting to get into to technology, maybe specifically getting into programming or really anything. What would be the advice that you would give people of what are the points about open source and Linux that you would want them to know the most? So another formative experience I had, um, I said I had all Apple school, Apple computers in elementary school. Um, one of my uh, parents' friends had, he was actually a computer programmer, a database programmer in the 80s. He had a PC at home, and he let me come over to his house to use it. I, I learned GW Basic from there to upgrade from the AppleSoft Basic. Um, and one of the things he told me um, was, don't worry, you can't do anything to this computer that I can't fix. Like, if you want to edit the config sys or the auto exec bat, you can't mess it up. I mean, you can... Like, the worst thing that'll happen is we'll, ha uh, we'll have to figure out how to fix it, but it's all fixable. You can't break it. So I think the first thing, like, I, 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 I broke it a couple times. We fixed it. I learned a lot. And so don't be afraid to break it. Like, you can't, you can't mess up your Linux computer to the point where you can't put it back. And putting it back will be very educational. So get dirty, break, break things. And then I think a really good way to get involved is helping people. So, like, ask Fedora you know, the, whatever the Ubuntu thing, communities that are kind of focused around giving help to other people. Like, you don't need to be an expert. You just need to find the things that you do know or that you can find references to and help other people. And that's one of the best ways to learn um, Unix Stack Exchange. Those are those are great places to start helping other people. Um, start, you know, if you know something, uh, write documentation. That's a thing that we're really missing. Like, if, if someone said to me, hey, uh, I will give you five full-time programmers to work on Fedora, or you could have five full-time docs writers. Sorry, engineers, um, give me those docs writers, right? Um, there's a bigger there's a bigger lack in that area, and it's also somewhere that you can plug into um, without having a lot of programming knowledge. Even if, you, if even if you want to be a programmer, helping build that stuff up, like writing docs, um, is going to be invaluable. And then if someone's hiring you for a job. And you can say, I wrote this documentation. 
I guarantee you that will be much more appealing than I wrote this, this, you know, whatever program that's on GitHub. Like I wrote the documentation for a real project killer on your resume. Yeah. And the other thing about docs, I've been kind of have a personal focus on it the past, the past couple of years is when I know a lot of people that don't want to get into to doing stuff like that because they're like, well, I don't know. I don't know what the technology is. I don't understand it. It's like, that's why you're the perfect person. Because you don't understand, so you're coming in completely, I don't know anything, what gets you up to speed? Because as you take that journey in learning the thing, as long as you make notes of each step of the way, you've just now got the format for the documentation for the next person that doesn't know anything. Oh, exactly. So many docs are written from a higher level of, well, I know all this stuff, so I'm just going to breeze over it. And there's so much assumed knowledge that ends up in the document that somebody who doesn't know it comes to it and they read it and they're like, I don't, I'm not understanding any of this. Yeah, it's almost impossible when, you, when you've when you been, had your hands, you know, so deep in it that you can't see the perspective of a new person. So having someone new to it is really very valuable. Yeah. So on the Fedora front, um, I'll give you some, some shameless PR time. Why do you think that Fedora stands above the rest? And for people who are interested in getting into Linux, um, why, what would you, what would you say to, to suggest that, Hey, try out Fedora? So I think we have two major things. One is we have a, we are one of the progenitor distributions in a way, like it goes back to the beginning. And so there's a history of, of Fedora code that goes back to that, back to that Red Hat Linux CD from the nineties. Um, and it's a, it's been a continuous project. Um, and so it's had a lot of time to evolve you know, engineering around that. And some of that's baggage, but some of that is just like a lot of lessons learned that are put into code that makes it be a solid, very well-engineered project. And we've got a lot of people who put their life's passion into making it that way. So technologically, awesome. And then we really do have a great community where we try to, um, you know, one of our, our, our values is friends. Like, and it's, that's actually the, a core of who we are as as Fedora is a community of friends working on this, and so we we want you to come join and work with us. It's uh, part of who we are, uh, and that goes to you know if you are if you don't want to you know be a programmer if you don't even want to write the docs, it's still you're part of the Fedora community when when you become a Fedora user. Uh, we don't we don't draw a big distinction between you know community member and user or developer and end user like it's it's all it's all Fedora. So okay, using using you as an example of a community member who went from you know that Red Hat CD all the way up to being the project lead. What was what was your kind of journey through the Fedora community from the guy who just used it one time to where you are now? Now you've asked what turns out to be a long, <laughs> long story question, um, but it's okay. Uh, so I, uh, after after I built that ISP, my, my same friend who I worked, built it with, uh, went and worked at Boston University. Um, he followed, followed a girlfriend out here to Boston where I still live 20 something years later. And a year later he said, hey, we've got job openings here. Come here, I can, I can get you a job. And he did. Um, so. Um, I was working at Boston University, and I was actually working on a horrible project for a 20-something sysadmin, which was moving professors who had been using VMS, which is a great operating system, but mm -hmm. obsolete, um, from literally like 20 years out of warranty VAXs to a new Unix system. And technologically, I was totally down for that. 
but uh, that was a very hard social challenge because imagine a 70-year-old professor who's been using VMS since the 70s trying to be like, and you should use Pine. It's a great mail client. <laughs> yeah, so that, that part of that, that wasn't going so well. And then meanwhile, around the same time, um, Linux started sprouting up around the university because, again, a lot, you know, universities are, are strange environments, um, but, uh, you know, departments often had their own, you know, grad students who would then um, be responsible for a server for that mm -hmm. department. And they might have, you know, sprung for a Sun or IREX box or digital Unix or something, but budgets are tight. And if you're like the you know, linguistics department, you might not want to spend all that money. So they're like, let's get a PC and this grad student who says he can put Linux on it, um, we'll, we'll do it right. that way. And around that time, I remember a study from one of the magazines, this was back in the days when there were still magazines, um, where they had put um, Linux distros that they'd gotten, you know, the box, like the boxes on the shelves behind you, and they installed that, and they just connected that to the internet and then watched what happened. And they rated Red Hat Linux as the most secure because it took 15 minutes before somebody <laughs> was had owned that um, out-of-the-box in installation. So our security team at Boston University was basically spending increasingly amount, amounts of their time just going around telling people, you've got to stop running mm -hmm. Linux. This isn't allowed on the university. So I looked at that and I said, well, I like Linux. I'm running it on my desktop. I don't want to be forbidden from doing that. And this is an open source thing. So I went to my manager and ultimately to the vice president of IT mm -hmm. there, uh, who this is a whole story about John Porter, who was the, the head of IT at, at Boston University for many years. He, he himself had been a student who had wrote or partly wrote an operating system that they ran on their mainframes back in the 70s, and he just stayed ever okay. since and became okay. um, in charge of everything. Um, and he and Marjorie, or basically second in command, were, were very sympathetic to this idea of a young person who wanted to build an operating system for the university, because that's what I proposed. Let's take Red Hat Linux and make a fork of it that is secured and tied into university services. And instead of telling people no, we'll tell them, hey, you can run Linux, but if you want to run Linux, run this one, it won't get broken into, which was very successful. And um, I think we never had one of my Boston University Linux systems broken into. We had over a thousand of them running at the peak nice. of that. Um, and so I got involved with that as basically a fork of Red Hat Linux. And that, that became a pretty big project of with NIT there, and I had you know, other other people on a virtual team working with me on that. And uh, because we didn't want to do a lot of work, this is one of the lessons that Fedora has as well. If you make a fork of something, you branch something off, every time the other thing changes, you have to go back and re rebase your changes. You have to update your things you've changed with how they changed in the upstream, and it's annoying. So if you want to do less work, you should do the hard work of getting your changes upstreamed into, into the distribution. So there are some things that we did at Boston University, like if right now you type DNF remove kernel or remove system D on mm -hmm. your system, um, your system will not eat itself. DNF will say, yeah, that's going to make the system not boot if you do that. And it will not let you do that unless you mm -hmm. overwrite it. Um, we, we actually um, wrote that protection 
for YUM, the predecessor to DNF, um, as a plugin for YUM for Boston University systems because we had people making those mistakes. And we, we actually mm -hmm. had an automatic update system, and we wanted the automatic update system to have a fail-safe where it wouldn't eat itself. So we made some of these right. changes. This is a long way of saying we because we were making changes, getting them into you know Red Hat Linux was was ideal, but that was hard. Um, because it was uh, at the time you know, open source, but developed all inside Red Hat. So when Red Hat in the early 2000s decided that instead of selling T-shirts and barely scraping by, they wanted to actually make money, they changed the strategy to the, in retrospect, incredibly successful enterprise Linux strategy and put their focus into RHEL. And out of that, with some birthing pains, came the Fedora project and... That was a way that we could actually get involved directly in the things we were trying to do, and so I was I was very excited about that, and uh, I got got deeply involved at the beginning. So speaking of community, Fedora, what became the Fedora project was a if if my memory serves me correctly was originally like a package set on top of the original yeah, Red Linux, yeah, correct? Warren Tagami, who was um, one of the early yeah, started started this. As, a, as an add-on repository, and we had, this is getting into the technology, though, a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, basically it was, you know, Red, Red Hat maintained this thing called Fedora Core, well, originally it was Red Hat Linux, and then Fedora.us was a set of add-on packages for that, and so when the mm -hmm. initial merger happened, the original Red Hat Linux became Fedora Core, and these add-on packages that were Fedora.us became Fedora Extras, and so the community side was outside, and then and the Fedora mm -hmm. Core was still Red Hat developed. And for Fedora Fedora 7, Fedora Core went away, and some of my predecessor FPLs put a, a lot of emotional labor into the work of convincing Red Hat that this was a good idea and technical labor into making it happen so that Fedora became a true community project with, with um, community uh, involvement in all areas of development. So with the, with the Fedora project, before you were project lead, were there certain things in the Fedora kind of community that that you focused on, or? Um, yeah, so I had been working at Boston University doing um, the doing the the you know BU Linux thing, and after about ten years there, uh, Rel had come into its own and was mm -hmm. you, you could install a Rel system and it wouldn't be broken into immediately. Uh, and, you know, Red Hat was reliable for you know, support and consulting and all the value add that Red Hat gives was, was right. starting to be there. And so what I was doing was less useful and I was getting bored. I had young kids. It was time to move on. So I actually took a different job working at the brand new School of Applied Sciences at Harvard. Um, one of my other friends was like, come get a job here. A lot of my <laughs> career path is come get a job here from people. Um and so I worked um, in academic computing there, and this was kind of beginning of cloud computing things. So we built cloud clusters, and we were working on using mm -hmm. cloud technologies for providing resources to students for instruction. And so I was working on that. I, my involvement in Fedora dipped quite a bit because it wasn't nearly as directly relevant, but I still, still kept touch with things. And then someone at uh, Red Hat, Robin Bergeron, former FPL, and Tom Calloway, who um, Spot mm -hmm. is a luminary of open source legal expertise. You should have him on this show, by the way. Yeah, Spot's uh, a great guy. I plan uh, to get him on. All right. Um, 
and Robin too. Oh, Robin's also awesome. Anyways, now I'm distracted by thinking of all my Fedora friends. <laughs> uh, they said, "Hey, come, come, come work for Red Hat." And so uh, I started the job doing uh, Fedora Cloud image, Fedora Cloud architect for mm-hmm. that. And then as part of that, I I have a problem with seeing things like on a bigger picture and being like, I want to mess with that. Like, if I learn a new game, like, I'm like, let's make some house rules is my, like, next next yeah. step, right? And so um, Robin was getting pretty burned out as our project leader. It's a hard job. Um, and she spent her last, last efforts of that at getting it restructured so that the next person would be able to stay in the job a little bit longer. Thank you, Robin. Seems yeah. like she's been successful. So I uh, was like, okay. I, I, I had been involved in the Fedora Next stuff with Stephen Gallagher and trying to figure out, you know, let's... We need we need Fedora to get out of the doldrums as a project and and get start thinking a little more strategically about how we're going to succeed as a project and so that's kind of the Fedora Next thing which I think has been a big success. We're kind of that was supposed to be a five year vision and we're at the end of that so we're working on where we're going next. Did I answer the question? We talked about tangents earlier. That might have just been tangent. Uh, yeah, that's fine. So when you were working back with Fedora, do you remember? like the time when it was finally propositioned to you of, hey, Matthew, how about you do this thing where you just run everything? Do you, do you remember that? Was it an email? Was it just like over coffee when you were talking with Robin or? Uh, so it was actually uh, talking with Denise Dumas, who was the um, head of basically platform at the time, vice okay. president. And we need to check her title. I don't know if that's right. Um, Okay, I can check, and I will make sure I put it in the description what her official <laughs> title is. It's not that anymore because she's moved on to a different thing at this point. Anyways, okay, aside, aside. So um, there had been some restructuring, and I was actually, as because I had put architect in my title, which is a clever thing to do, by the way, <laughs> um, when we when we got restructured, I was re- I was um, an architect reporting to her on the team in, in the Fedora things, and so I was talking with her about Fedora and the Fedora Next strategy, a lot okay. and i think it was me i said to denise i i'd like to do that i think that she didn't tell me first okay she, she thought about it and was like okay we'll give you a try well it seems to have worked out very well for uh for fedora i i hope so it's it's one of those jobs where it there, there's some am i am i the right person for this second guessing a, a lot of mm-hmm. time um but I also really uh, get a lot of help, and there are a lot of other people. And that's one of the things that Robin helped with the restructuring. Um, Marie Norton is my F-cake. That's the Fedora Community Action and Impact Coordinator, a horrible yep. title that we've um, <laughs> settled that job with because I really don't like the title Community Manager because uh, for an open source project. A community Manager is a great title for a forum of users mm-hmm. who is that kind of community. There are people who are cranky at the developers about all the features they're <laughs> doing wrong and enthusiastic about the product, but they're distinct from from the actual development. The Fedora community is not a community like that, and a community manager is not an appropriate role. So we've got this F cake. I didn't come up with that title. I just said not, not manager, <laughs> and that's what it landed on. And then we also have the Fedora Council, which is structured to be a very involved leadership body rather than like a board that, that kind of does a review at, mm-hmm. at, at, you know, at a distance. Uh, and so that's really helped it be possible. And I really, I try to listen to people a lot. I think that's my primary job in this, is to right. see, see what, what people want and to try and help, help steer the project in a way that 
that people who are the project want it to go. I think in a way, being a project lead is sort of similar to the, the old joke about uh, sysadmins and that if they're doing their job well, you don't really notice them because everything's working well, things are progressing, everything's good. But if they're not doing their job well, <laughs> everything falls apart. And that, that's what you don't want. All right. Well, I'll take it. I'll take it. I, I think things are not falling apart. Things are going pretty well. We've got some rough spots, but we're working on them. And uh, yeah. To wrap up, if you had, and I know this is a big ask, but if you had to pick one aspect of not just Fedora, but kind of Linux and open source as a whole, that is what you prize above everything else. What would you what would you put it as? You can think for a second. It's, it's okay. <laughs> I no, I just like wait. That's an easy question. That's not a hard question. It's the it's the community of collaboration, the friends. I think that's amazing. Uh, people who are and and the the free software movement goes with this. The open source movement goes with this because it's not just a community of people who like each other. It's a community of people who are working to build this shared thing that belongs to us. And I think that's that's one of the reasons. You know, when I, when I see somebody who's running Mac operating system, you know, whatever, and they're like, this is so slick. Why would I run Fedora? It's Fedora operating systems have these glitchy things. You're never going to be able to compete with the proprietary software. Now, we can make the argument that, come on, the technology is actually pretty good. And you're, you, you know, you're, the proprietary stuff has its frustrations as well, blah, blah, blah. But then you're kind of in this tech battle and it, that's, You've been going on since the since the VMS and Unix uh, wars from whatever, yeah. right? Um, but really, the difference is uh, with Fedora or any other you know community Linux operating system. This is the thing that we own, and not just we, the Fedora project. This is like this is the operating system of we, the people, and that's amazing. And so it's worth being involved in it. It's worth it's worth being part of this because. It's ours, and that's a value mm -hmm. in itself. And this is the thing of our community, and yeah, it, it it's a thing for the whole world. That's what's beautiful about it. Perfectly said, and I think that's a great a great spot to end on. So Matthew, thank you for taking the time to sit down with me and uh, to talk for a little bit. I, I've definitely enjoyed it. Hopefully everyone else will. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.